0: Well, uh, kids, as we begin this morning, I have a a question for you, and I know there's there's, uh, just a few of you here, so I'm going to need your help, okay? Okay, Uh, kids, who knows what the phrase, actions speak louder than words, means? Does anybody know what that phrase means, that actions speak louder than words? Who's going to help me out? Okay, parents, adults, I'm going to need some help here. Who knows what the phrase, actions speak louder than words, means? The adults all know it. They don't have to tell me. This was for the kids. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, let me explain it to you then, kids, right? So, for example, uh, if you were to tell your brother or sister that you loved them, you said that you loved them, but then you went and you... You like smeared their face in the mud or you gave them a noogie or a wedgie where you were like really actually trying to hurt them. What is that showing? Hmm? That you don't really love them, right? Uh, You don't do that to someone that you love. Your words are saying one thing, but your actions are showing something else. Or another example, if you tell a parent or a friend uh, that you forgive them for something that they did to you, if you use your words and say, I forgive you, but then you continue to treat them really poorly, and every time they come by, you give them like the stink eye or the cold shoulder and and and, and kind of are ignoring them. What is that showing? It's showing that you haven't really forgiven them, right? Your, your words are saying one thing. You're, you're communicating with your words that you forgive somebody. But you're showing with your actions something else entirely, that you are still mad as fire at them for whatever it is that they did. And so in the end, which one is more convincing, your actions or your words? And I'm not going to say anything else until a kid responds to me. Yes, hands up. Thank you. Barnes boys, which one's more convincing? Um, The The actions. Perfect. That's exactly right. And that is why the saying is true, that your actions speak louder than your words. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about starting today and, and really for the rest of this season of Epiphany. Because Epiphany, if you remember, is a season where we remember that Jesus has been made known in all of the earth. And as Jesus was being revealed, as as he was being made known, there were some incredible things that were said about Jesus. uh, Prior to, during, and after his life. For example, Jesus has been called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's been called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He's been called Creator, Redeemer, Messiah, Savior, and Master. And these were all things that people said about Jesus. And Jesus has even said some pretty amazing things about Himself, too. Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, the truth. And the life. He said that going through him was the only way that someone can get to the father in heaven. He said that he is the light of the world. That he is the good shepherd of our souls. He said that he is the vine that connects us to God. He actually even said that he is the same as God. That he and the father were one. So people have said some pretty amazing things about Jesus And Jesus has even said some pretty amazing things about himself. But how do we know that that all of these things that were said about Jesus or that were said by Jesus are actually true? How do we know that Jesus isn't just like any of these other crazy, deranged people who have ever walked this earth claiming to be God? And how do we know that the people who followed Him and said amazing things about Him aren't just part of a a crazy cult that have been lied to and deceived by words that are not true? How do we know that all of the incredible things that have been said about Jesus or that have been said by Jesus aren't just cheap, empty words? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning and in the weeks to come in this sermon series we've entitled, Prove it. In it, we're going to be looking not at what Jesus said, but at how Jesus lived. We're going to be looking not at his words or at the words that were said about him, but instead we're going to be looking at his actions that speak even louder than his words and that ultimately prove to us that his words are true. And so, kids, this morning during the sermon, I want you to listen uh, for what Jesus's for the way in which Jesus' actions, uh, when he was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, proved that he was indeed the Son of God. And if you uh, don't have an activity sheet yet, you can go back and get an activity sheet in the back of the church. And on it, there's a place where you can draw uh, the uh, different de- depictions of, of, of Jesus' temptation. And at the bottom of the page, I want you to write down how that account proves That Jesus is who He says He is. Okay? So now I want to invite us all, young and old, to open up our ears and to open our minds, to open our hearts. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it again to Matthew chapter 4. As we consider how Jesus' actions prove to us that His words are true. And as we consider why those actions matter to us. How does Jesus prove it? The story, it takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. After Jesus' birth, which we have recently celebrated at Christmas, we we hear almost nothing of Jesus' life for the next uh, 33 years, up until this point. And in the passage that immediately preceded, uh, ours for this morning, Jesus had just been baptized Uh, And at his baptism, he was declared to be the uh, the Son of God by a voice that had come down from heaven. Those were words that were spoken about him. And then the very next thing that happens, as if it were uh, almost queued up for this very sermon series, that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil, where he is repeatedly asked to prove... That he is indeed the Son of God. And so uh, a statement about Jesus' identity has been made. And now the devil is challenging him to prove that it is true. And in this temptation account, Jesus ultimately proves by his actions that the statement about him is true. But not in the way that the devil had intended for him to do so. So let's consider this story... Together. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read that the devil came to Jesus while he was in the wilderness and, in two different ways, challenged him to prove that he was indeed the Son of God. In verse 3, the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to turn into bread. He's saying, Show that you have control over the elements of the earth. In order to prove it, Satan said. And then in verse 6, Satan says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of this temple. And then Satan quotes Psalm 91, which promises God's protection over his anointed one. The devil is tempting Jesus to prove by his actions that he is indeed the Son of God. On the third temptation, Satan changes his tactics slightly and and tempts Jesus with the, the passions of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, offering to him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory without the cost of having to go to the cross in order to obtain them. But in all three of these temptations, Jesus doesn't bite. He never gives in to the devil's temptations. And instead, in each occasion, he rebukes and refutes the devil with the words of God by quoting scripture to him. Now that's the story. That's what happens in the account. And what I want to do with this story this morning is spend uh, a, a few moments with three different Ps. Okay? Uh, first I want us to ponder some interesting facts about this story. And then I want us to consider what this story actually proves. And then finally I want us to consider the help and the hope that this story provides. So first, uh, I want us to ponder this story for a moment. Because part of what I find so fascinating about this encounter is how eerily similar Satan's tactics with Jesus in the wilderness are to the other major temptation account that we read this morning from Genesis chapter 3 when Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did you notice how similar these two stories were? When you look at each encounter side by side, what you realize is that Satan uses almost the exact same strategy in order to try to tempt Jesus to sin that he used when tempting Adam and Eve to sin. Think about it. In Eden, Satan began his temptation of Adam and Eve by trying to get them to doubt the words of God which had been clearly spoken to them. In in Genesis chapter 2, which was right before uh, our reading in Genesis chapter 3, God had been very clear and very straightforward with Adam when he commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord could not have been any more clear or any more direct in his instructions. And yet the very first word out of the devil's mouth when he comes to Eve is intended to get her to question and to doubt what God had said. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, the serpent says to Eve, Did God actually say that you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you catch that? God had actually said that they may not eat from one particular tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan sowed doubt about these words of God, and then he twisted these words to make them say something else entirely. Did God say? Sowing doubt. About any tree in the garden? Twisting words. In the wilderness, he does the exact same thing with Jesus. At his baptism, God had just spoken words from heaven declaring that Jesus was his beloved son. But the very first words out of the devil's mouth when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness were, If you are the son of God. He sowed doubt about what God had clearly said. And then he twisted the word of God from Psalm 91. Turning God's word of protection over his anointed one from a promise which God intended it to be into a test which God had not intended for it to be. In both instances, he sows doubt and then he twists God's words. It's the exact same pattern. After Satan sows doubt and twists God's words in both occasions, he then tries to make his prey believe that God is withholding good from them. And he entices them to try to become like God themselves, to grasp after what is not theirs to have. In the garden, the devil tempts Eve by saying, God knows that when you eat of the forbidden fruit, that your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In the final wilderness account, Satan tempts Jesus by offering him all of the kingdoms of the world. ...which ultimately only belong to God. Satan offers what he can never really give. This is the repeated pattern. Over and over and over again. He, Satan tempts his prey to no longer trust God's goodness... ...or to obey God's commands. But instead he entices them to take matters into their own hands... ...and to become their own God. In the end it all leads to a blatant and bald-faced lie... You will not surely die when death is absolutely what awaits for all who disobey. From beginning to end, Satan uses the exact same tactics. And the reason that this is so important for us to ponder is because these are the exact same tactics that Satan continues to use today. We see it all over the place. Inside and outside of the church, in the world, and in our own lives. We see it in the denial of a gendered creation. Did God really make you male and female? We see it in the rejection of the Christian sexual ethic. Did God really say that sex is intended for marriage and that marriage is between one man and one woman and that it is intended to last for life? God couldn't have really meant that. He's withholding good from you. We see in the rejection of uh, our responsibility to love our neighbors as ourselves. And who is my neighbor? We are quick to ask. We see in the cultural assault on objective truth and reality that our world is so deeply struggling with in this current moment. What is truth? Pilate said, and we could say today. You can decide for yourself what is true and what is untrue. We see in the overlooking of seemingly insignificant sins, this one small indulgence into to gossip or into pornography or into whatever it may be. That couldn't hurt anyone. On and on it goes. And please hear me. I don't use those examples to pick on anyone. In particular, I use those examples to pick on everyone in general. Those are equal opportunity offenses. Right and left. Religious and irreligious. Those in the church and those in the world. And I don't bring them up to induce guilt or shame in anyone who struggles with those issues. But I highlight them in order to show you how blatantly obvious and in line they are with Satan's Tactics to cause us to doubt what God has clearly said. They're the same old tricks being replayed over and over and over again, down through the centuries, right up to this very moment. Satan takes the words of God that have been clearly spoken and he questions their truth. He sows doubt about their accuracy, he creates confusion about their goodness. And He entices us to take matters into our own hands, to become like God, deciding good and evil for ourselves. And He promises there will be no harm when we do. Surely, you will not die. But yet, certainly, everyone does die. We die spiritually with the bondage and the confusion and the guilt and the shame And the destruction that these things produce in our lives and in our relationships. And in the end, we die bodily. Death has gotten the final word on every human being who has ever lived. On all but one. And that brings us to the main point of this sermon and answers the question of how Jesus proves by his actions that the revelations about him are true. Because in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, unlike with every other human being that has ever lived in the history of the world, with Jesus, these temptations never worked. Jesus never fell prey to Satan's lies and to his twisted words and to his temptation to get him to usurp God's rightful reign and rule over his life. Jesus never took the bait, never bit the apple that all of the rest of humanity Has And this reality is attested to over and over and over again in the Scriptures. In a life that spanned three decades, our Lord never entertained a thought, never uttered a word, and never carried out an action that was defiled by impure motives. He always honored His Father in Heaven and honored His earthly father and mother as well. Jesus never lusted after a woman or a man. Never uttered a word in sinful anger. Never gossiped about, a, uh, gossiped about or slandered his neighbor. He never stole, never lied, never coveted. In short, he submitted to every commandment of the law of God without wavering. He never bought even one of Satan's lies. Instead, he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself, Ultimately, he loved his neighbor even more than he loved himself. As a result, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that he was holy, undefiled, and separated from sinners. The Apostle Paul reminds us that he knew no sin. Even Pontius Pilate, who was no fan of Jesus, acknowledged, I find no fault in him." The dying thief on the cross acknowledged the innocence of Jesus when he said, This man has done nothing wrong. In the wake of his crucifixion, the centurion at the foot of the cross uh, said, Certainly this was a righteous man. Even the demons recognized and testified that Jesus was the Holy One of God. And all of these witnesses and testimonies of Scripture are not given because of what was said about Jesus. But because these witnesses encountered the power of Jesus' unblemished life. We ultimately know that Jesus is the Son of God. Not because of what people said about Him, but because of the perfect, holy, and righteous life that Jesus lived. His actions confirmed his words and the words that were spoken about him. Part of what's ironic about this encounter with the devil in the wilderness is, was that Satan challenged Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God by his actions. You know, if you are the Son of God, prove it. And Jesus did prove it, just not in the way that Satan had intended for it. Jesus proved that He was the Son of God through His actions, not by doing what Satan told Him to do, but by being the only one who has ever not given in to Satan's schemes. And that makes Him unique in all of human history. That is what proves that He is indeed the Son of God. These are His actions that speak even louder than His words. And the reason that all this matters to us, the reason it's so significant that Jesus resisted Satan's temptation and, and never gave into his schemes, is because of all of the help and hope that these actions of Jesus' provide for us. And so I've got three points of application that I'm going to end with this morning of ways in which Jesus' resisting of the devil uh, provides help and hope for us. First. Jesus', uh, Jesus is facing of the temptation in the wilderness and throughout the rest of his life provides for us a God who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. This is what our New Testament reading out of Hebrews this morning teaches us. Jesus knows how hard this life is because he's faced all of the trials and temptations that life has to offer Jesus knows how difficult it is to be poor. He knows how hard it is to be single. He knows what it is like to face sexual temptation and lust. He knows the pain of being rejected by friends, of being criticized by enemies, of being lied about in public. He knows what it's like to suffer injustice. He knows what it's like to stand up for righteousness and the cost that's associated with that. Whatever it is that that you may be going through in your life, whatever challenges, uh, pains, hardships you may be encountering, Jesus knows the temptations and the sufferings and the pains of this world because He has lived them and faced them all Himself. And He knows how to handle them all perfectly because He never fell prey to sin in the midst of them. As a result of that, the beauty of all of that is that now... With Jesus seated at the right hand of God, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But we have an advocate before God, the Father, who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Which means that whatever you're facing in your life right now, whatever you might be struggling with, whatever it is that's causing you pain or worry, or fear, or doubt. You can take it to Jesus with confidence, knowing that He understands what you are going through, and He can help you with it, giving you mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. What incredibly good news. We don't have a God who is far off, and aloof, and unbothered, by the problems of this world, but one who intimately knows and understands and has experienced and overcome all of the challenges of this life. That's the first help and hope that this message, passage, provides us. The second help and hope that this passage provides is that it sets an example for us for how to withstand and resist the devil when he brings temptation into our lives. There are a number of places in the scriptures that that give us wisdom for how to stand against the temptations of the evil one. And they are all based on this example that is given to us by Jesus. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Or Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, which describes the armor of God which is given to us to help us in our battle against the the forces of evil in this world, the spiritual forces of evil in this world. He says we're to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. These are the very same tools that Jesus used when he stood against the devil. Standing firm against the devil, he relied on truth, on righteousness, on faith, on the word of God. And using those things, he took Satan's attempts to twist the word of God and he straightened them back out again. Giving it right back to the devil. We can do that too. It's the second help and hope that this passage provides. The final And the most important help and hope this passage provides is that it reminds us that Jesus doesn't just set an example for us in this work of resisting the devil. He doesn't just provide a model for us to follow, but he actually accomplishes the task for us in our stead. And this is the most important help and hope because it is our most important need. In resisting the devil, Jesus has done for us what we have never been able to do for ourselves. We can and should try to stand firm against the devil. But the scripture makes clear that in our struggles against sin, we have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. We all give in. We all fall short. And hence we've all earned the wages of sin, which is death. But Jesus never did. He resisted Satan's temptations until his blood was shed on our behalf. And this is our great hope. That in perfectly resisting the devil's temptations throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And as a result, when he was crucified and died upon the cross as a righteous man, he didn't deserve to die. Instead, he died the death that we deserve. He took our place in death. And as a result, when we believe that good news and when we receive his sacrifice made on our behalf, by placing our faith and hope and trust in him, Jesus imputes, gives to us his perfect righteousness to us. He takes all of our sins and he gives us all of his righteousness. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. His perfect life covers our imperfect lives. His perfect obedience overshadows our imperfect obedience. In a way that only Jesus ever could. By resisting the temptations of the devil, He saved us by His righteous life and His sacrificial death. And having overcome the grave by His resurrection, He now offers us a new and lasting life that is truly life, in him. That which God intended for us from the beginning, and which Satan stole from us through his deception and our sin, Jesus offers to us anew as the fruit of his perfect life. And this, church, is how Jesus' actions speak even louder than his words. This is how he proved, by the evidence of his life, that everything that was said about him was true. He is the Son of God. His perfect life proves it. This is what makes him worthy of our worship, and of our praise, and of the devotion of all of our lives. And so as we, church, continue throughout this season of Epiphany... And throughout all of the rest of the seasons of our lives, let us remember the perfect life that was lived for us. As summarized so powerfully in the hymn that we sang at the beginning of this service, before the throne of God above. I want to close with those words here again. I want you to listen to them and let them resonate in your heart. Contemplate their meanings and the implications that it has for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. The great, unchangeable I am, King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid. With Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Because of Christ's perfect life, may this hymn forever be the song of our imperfect lives. To God's glory and to our good. Amen.